To say that clinicians, patients and policymakers are eager for effective treatments for COVID-19 would be an understatement. Many studies have been published in recent weeks looking at several different treatment approaches for severe and milder disease, but it's crucial to examine the evidence for such treatments critically and to consider carefully their potential harms before making recommendations. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Executive Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Gordon Guyatt, who is a specialist in internal medicine, clinical epidemiologist at McMaster University, and an officer of the Order of Canada for his work in evidence-based medicine. Dr. Guyatt co-authored a clinical practice guideline on treatments for COVID-19, and he is joining me today to discuss it. Hello, Gordon. Hello. Pleasure to be here with you. It's great to talk to you about this guideline, which is sort of just-in-time information for clinicians. Um, clinical practice guidelines usually take months or sometimes years to pull together. Can you talk about how this guideline was pulled together really quickly? So there are a couple of reasons that uh, they often take um, a, a long period of time. One of those is that you have to, it often takes time to pull together the evidence. So a good practice guideline is gonna be based on what we call a rigorous systematic review. So there's scientific principles for putting the evidence together. It is, however, possible to do it very quickly. So people are not usually ready to drop everything that they were doing and devote all their time to producing the systematic reviews, but we were fortunate to have a team that was ready to drop everything and produce three systematic reviews, um, one related to corticosteroids, uh, one related to convalescent plasma as a uh, treatment for COVID, and one the various antiviral medications. So we had three teams working in parallel that put together the uh, systematic reviews. So that, that really is the major obstacle to get it done quickly. And these people were working, it would not be an exaggeration to say at times around the clock um, to get really good evidence summaries. So meanwhile, in parallel, while that was going on, uh, we got together a guideline panel that followed uh, standards for trustworthy guidelines, um, which is particularly a varied panel. So they were from different countries, they were physicians, they were pharmacists, there were patient partners uh, on the panel, people like me who are not only practitioners, but also know something about putting evidence together. And um, we looked carefully at their conflicts of interest and ensured that nobody was conflicted for the particular recommendations. So in parallel, we did the systematic reviews very quickly. We put the optimal guideline panel together. And so as soon as the evidence were re was ready, we had discussions about what, what we call values and preferences are very important. That's another thing about a trustworthy guideline. It will make its values and preferences explicit. Got all that together. And so as soon as the evidence was ready for the panel to view, the panel was ready to view it and come quickly to make recommendations. You say that you've done these three systematic reviews, which are in press at CMAJ, I understand. So the guideline is split into these main sections, looking at potential treatments for COVID-19, which include corticosteroids, convalescent plasma, and antiviral drugs. Let's talk about what you found. So we'll start with corticosteroids. Okay, you're going to hear a 
broken record kind of story, unfortunately for most of this, uh, with relatively minor exceptions. The broken record is, sorry, we don't know. Sorry, the evidence is low quality, or in most cases, very low quality, which means we are extremely uncertain about benefits. We're a little more sure about harms, which are always there, but in terms of benefits, we really have very little idea. And in many cases, the very preliminary evidence we have is not very optimistic about benefits. That is true with corticosteroids, except in one restricted situation. And that restricted situation is critically ill people with what we call acute respiratory distress syndrome. And acute respiratory distress syndrome is when you are very sick from any number of things, which could be a lung infection, but it could also be trauma, it could also be pancreatitis, and so on. Uh, and in other words, it's a lung reaction to very serious illness where the lung essentially fills up with fluid and you can die from not being able to get enough oxygen in. There have been a number of randomized trials, well done randomized trials. Randomized trials are the gold standard of finding out if treatments actually do any good or not. And these randomized trials have shown decreased death rates in people with ARDS when they are given steroids. However, does that apply to COVID? Maybe, maybe not. And because of the maybe not, we only make what we call a weak recommendation. We aren't sure, but the suggestion is that perhaps one might get a mortality reduction when these ARDS patients by giving with, with uh, whose a ARDS is a complication of COVID if they get steroids. For other patients, it's back to the broken record. For anybody with COVID who doesn't have ARDS, then we are very uncertain of any benefits from steroids. They will have some side effects. And so for uh, non-ARDS patients, we made a weak recommendation against giving corticosteroids because of uncertain benefits. In your systematic reviews, you look at both direct and indirect evidence. Would you like to explain to us a little bit about what that means? Direct evidence would be that you took patients with COVID-19 and they either received or didn't receive treatment and you look at what happened. And ideally, you would have randomized trials where what would determine if they received or didn't receive treatment was the random allocation by chance. Unfortunately, there are very few randomized trials in COVID-19. When we don't have randomized trials, we fall back on observational studies where it's the physician's choice, the patient's choice, or coincidence that determines whether people get or do not get the treatment. And that gives much lower quality evidence than randomized trials. But we don't even have too many of those that are well done in the COVID population. So what are we going to do? We have very limited direct evidence in people with COVID-19. So what we do is then rely on what you might call indirect evidence. And this ARDS example that I went through is a very good example. So we have lots of, well, we have quite a few randomized trials with quite a few patients in ARDS for various reasons. 
bacterial infections, other viral infections, uh, trauma, pancreatitis, a whole bunch of different things, but not COVID-19. And in this whole variety of different conditions, steroids reduce mortality. But will that be the same in COVID-19? Well, not so sure. And that's what makes it indirect evidence. Indirect evidence, you gather evidence from one population and try to apply it to another population. And sometimes you may be more sure, but sometimes you may be that the population where you got the evidence from may be quite different from the COVID-19, in which case you'd, not, you'd be very uncertain about applying the results on the other population, the indirect evidence to COVID-19. Let's move on to what did you find for convalescent plasma? Well, convalescent plasma, we have randomized trials in other conditions, primarily uh, influenza. And the answer is, even in influenza, the convalescent plasma does not seem to work very well. There haven't been large randomized trials, so it's limited. So we're not sure about influenza, but there wasn't strong evidence of benefit in, even in influenza. And influenza is very different from the, the virus structure is very different from the coronaviruses. Coronaviruses are SARS and MERS and COVID-19. Influenza is a, is, a, is a virus, but a different type of virus. So even if we had uh, high quality evidence in influenza suggesting the merits, the benefit of convalescent plasma, we might hesitate to um, apply it to COVID-19. As it turns out, we're not even sure it works in people with influenza. So bottom line is, it's a big question mark about convalescent plasma. Um, people in Canada are now, and I'm sure in other places as well, I'm just familiar with a Canadian group who is organizing a randomized trial of convalescent plasma uh, in COVID-19, which is good because that's what we're gonna find out. But at the moment, uncertain and perhaps the optimism is warranted. Now, in the guideline, you make the point that given the resource intensiveness of producing and administering convalescent plasma, that plays into your recommendation that it should not be used given what we know. Can you tell us a little bit about how convalescent plasma is resource intensive and what the costs and requirements are to be able to deliver that? The idea of convalescent plasma is people get infected with COVID-19 and the body's immune system responds. And fortunately, in most people, overwhelmingly actually, it responds very well and people don't get very sick. Some people do. But at any rate, what you do is you find people who've been infected, who hopefully have produced lots of antibodies, which are part of how the body fights the infection. You collect their plasma, you refine their plasma to get high antibody levels, and then you give that plasma with the high antibody levels. Uh, you give it intravenously to the people who are infected. Well, you can start imagining, you have to find the people who've had it, you have to collect their plasma, you have to refine their plasma to get sufficiently high antibody levels, and then you have to infuse it, collect it, store it, process it properly, and then infuse it into 
the new patient with COVID-19. All of that is a pretty big production and certainly quite different from just giving a pill. So moving on to antivirals, uh, you looked at a number of antiviral medications in several categories. You've looked at um, ribavirin, umifenivir, which is uh, trade name Arbidol, favipiravir, lopinavir and ritonavir combination, hydrochloroquine, and two kinds of interferon, interferon alpha and interferon beta. So what did you find was the state of the evidence for antiviral drugs? Well, the sad story is the state of the evidence is uh, generally very low quality evidence for benefits. So uh, really, we are very uncertain. Maybe these work, or maybe they don't work. And in some, not only it's maybe they work and maybe they don't work, but what evidence we have suggests maybe more likely they don't work. And that actually is in, in most of them. And even in the ones where we have some suggestion they might work, the study designs and the number of patients and everything leaves it as only very low quality evidence. So there is nothing out there currently that in our view warrants encouraging patients with COVID-19 to use because we don't know that anything works. Everything comes with cost. Everything comes with burden. Everything comes with side effects. And in some cases, the uh, drugs come with a risk of people developing resistance, uh, not only with respect to COVID-19, but other things these drugs are used for. And in some cases, like hydroxychloroquine, the drugs are actually useful in other conditions, uh, rheumatologic or autoimmune conditions, and they may be scarce for the people who really need them. So uh, lots of downsides of giving these treatments, at best uncertain benefits, does not seem in general like a good idea. So I found a reading through the potential adverse effects of some of these drugs very interesting. And um, I encourage listeners to go and read the full article to see a list of the um, adverse effects that you discovered for antiviral medication. In your guideline, you compare your recommendations to recommendations that have been made by other bodies and societies in recent weeks. For example, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign recommendations that came out in March and the Infectious Diseases Society of America um, guideline that came out very recently indeed. Could you tell us how your recommendations differ from the recommendations of other societies? Well, the answer is not much. One big difference is uh, there were a number of the drugs that we addressed that other societies have not commented on. So that's the biggest difference. In the ones that other societies have commented on, uh, very similar to ours. There's a sort of variation on this weak recommendation against, which is use only in randomized trials. And that says probably that that gives more or less the same message as our weak recommendations against. So when others have recommended, when they have addressed the same treatments that we have similar conclusions, the society, the critical care medicine folks also made a weak recommendation as we did in favor of steroids and ARDS, the only positive recommendation that we made. So pretty consistent. Okay, and I think what you were saying there is the recommendation to use only within the context of a randomized trial is almost code for 
the evidence is equivocal? Well, it, it's two things. Yes, it tells you that we're not sure, but it also says that sometimes we may not be sure, but it might be okay to try it. Because, as you said in your introduction, people say, oh, this is terrible, particularly if they're quite sick with it. Please give me anything that might help. That might be a way that the patient might respond. And if there was preliminary evidence that looked sufficiently good, preliminary evidence that looked optimistic, we might say, sorry, we don't know, but there's enough evidence that maybe we should try it, or it's reasonable to try it. The situation here is not that good. In most cases, either the evidence is suggests that maybe it doesn't work, or but even then uncertain, or even if there's very, very preliminary evidence it might work, it's so low quality that it's in effect completely untrustworthy. So the only use in randomized trials, we think that there's really very little support and we're going to need randomized trials before uh, we really have any good ideas to what we should do. So we know that more and more evidence is being produced almost every day uh, related to treatment for SARS-CoV-2 and, um, and COVID-19. And the evidence base is changing so quickly. There's an enormous challenge in trying to keep up with the latest recommendations. How are you planning to update this guideline in the future? Well, what we have done is this was a team put together quickly and efficiently and uh, to get out, get out something fast, which we have done. As you point out, in the next months, there's going to be a barrage of information, hopefully quite a few results of randomized trials. And this, in our view, needs a bigger collaboration uh, of different groups to keep up with the evidence and to do it in the most sophisticated way. So um, we have put together a group, of, a group of players that include the World Health Organization, include Canadian investigators who have been funded by the Canadian Institute of Health Research to, among other things, uh, collect and summarize the evidence. Our group here at McMaster University, who's expert in doing evidence summaries, is going to participate in this and a group associated with the British Medical Journal who are expert in producing rapid recommendations. There's something that's been going since 2016, which are called BMJ Rapid Recommendations. Uh, that team is going to be involved. And that team also has a electronic platform that's great for publishing guidelines and disseminating them in user-friendly ways. And we're hoping that the team that put together these systematic reviews will be part of that group as well. The guideline panel for that group will be different because it will meet WHO standards. So that when we put together these new guidelines, we hope that these are going to be ones that the WHO, World Health Organization, is happy to endorse. And they have very strict geographical representation issues, for instance. So they need so many people from Africa and so many people from Asia and so many from South America and so many from North America and so many from Europe and so on. So quite strict ways 
of having to put together with the panel. They have conflict of interest rules, actually, if anything, perhaps not as strict as the ones that we use. But at any rate, the bottom line is what needs to happen going forward is very sophisticated collaboration from a number of groups with guidelines, hopefully, that will get prominent publication. We're hoping that uh, uh, we'll see if we can put it together. The BMJ will be part of that. We're hoping that the CMAJ will be part of that as well in terms of a journal uh, outlet for the information, but a group that will also produce guidelines that meet WHO criteria so that the WHO can endorse them as well. That sounds like an astounding endeavor. We're actually, I'm quite excited about it, actually. What do you think it's most important for clinicians and patients to understand about COVID-19 treatments at this time? Well, I've been asked, what is the major obstacle to the dissemination of our guidelines and people using them as they should be used? And that is misinformation. So you have famous political figures who are giving out misinformation. You have people in the medical community who are giving out misinformation and playing on people's fear and people's need. There must be something. And one of the ways things are mischaracterized is, okay, there's, you're not going to treat me or there's no, there's no treatment that works. Well, there is treatment that works, and that's what we call supportive care. So if you get COVID pneumonia, uh, we give you oxygen, we give you fluids. Um, if we're worried about a bacterial infection, which sometimes comes as well, we would give you antibiotics. We would give you medications to bring down fever and so on. And if you get more ill and go into a critical care unit, we have a whole additional set of supportive cares we have ventilators, uh, we have drugs to support the blood pressure, um, and so on. So it is, it is not a choice of no treatment versus treatment. It is a choice of supportive treatment that we know works versus adding in additional treatment that we have little idea that in, that in my opinion, the odds are it doesn't work and that carries substantial downsides, including adverse effects. And that, I'm afraid, is often not the way it is presented to the public. There are many places around the world where everybody with COVID or almost everybody is getting one of these treatments that we think should not be administered. So the problem here is people realizing what the situation is and the big downside is misinformation. Gord, thank you for speaking to me today. Well, you're very welcome. Um, I'm glad that CMAJ is enthusiastic for pu pu publishing it. And we are extremely enthusiastic about having the CMAJ published. So thank you to you and your colleagues. I've been speaking to Dr. Gordon Guyatt, an internal medicine specialist and clinical epidemiologist at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, and all-around rock star of evidence-based medicine. To read the guideline article he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. We also have a special page dedicated to all our COVID-19 content. You can find a link to it in the podcast description. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Executive Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>